Father, I want to pray um, very especially this morning as we come to this um, remarkable passage. Um, I want to pray that all of us here in the Sandal Centre and everyone tuning in at home uh, would have a real sense this morning of your reality as the living God and that we might even get um, a glimpse this morning of your glory, of your majesty, of your transcendent holiness and light and goodness and love. Um, Father, we pray that we would have a, a sense that you are here with us this morning as we listen to your word, and then as we join in worship and as we break bread together. Um, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, before we come to our, our kind of key phrase this morning, um, we're going to start here, which is where this passage begins. Um, in the year that King Uzziah died, um, I don't know if that phrase means anything to you. Maybe, maybe it doesn't mean a lot to us uh, when we hear it. Um, but I want to suggest to a Jewish person, it would have been full of meaning. Um, in the same way that if I said to you, in the year that the, the Twin Towers fell, and you would have kind of a sense of all kinds of things that are connected with 9-11 and the things that came after that. In the same way for a Jewish person, if you said, in the year that King Uzziah died, there had been all kinds of associations would rush in. And maybe the hairs on the back of your neck would have... Uh, stood up a little bit. Um, let me try and paint a little bit of a picture of why that was, that that phrase might have been full of meaning. Um, King Uzziah's reign uh, in Judah had been long and prosperous and mostly peaceful. Um, he became king of Judah at the age of 16, which is quite remarkable in itself, around 792 BC. He reigned for about 52 years. And if you read about him in 2 Chronicles 26, um, there's a little summary that says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful thing to have said about you? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. If you know a bit about the kings of Israel and Judah, you'll know that's not said about a lot of them. <laughs> but it was said about Uzziah. Um, Uzziah was actually instructed during his kingship by the prophet Zechariah. So he had Zechariah beside him, um, helping him uh, keep on the right track. Um, and it was one of the brightest periods in Judah's history. They had victory over their enemies. There was prosperity in the land. There was a sense of peace and well-being in Judah. For some people, it may even have reminded them of the golden age of David on the throne, who was Uzziah's ancestor. And it might have reminded them a little bit of the golden days of David. But towards the end of Uzziah's reign, things started to go wrong. Um, first of all, for him personally, um, it says in 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16, his pride led to his downfall. So just when he was at his height, it's a really sad thing uh, to hear about anybody. His pride led to his downfall and he became unfaithful and he started to ignore God's commands and do things his own way. Um, and there's a remarkable kind of visual, physical um, manifestation of this. He ended his life with leprosy, 
which was, seems to have been a kind of physical manifestation given by God of the spiritual disease that had entered into Uzziah, which also then started to infect the nation. So the king started to go wrong, and then the nation started to go wrong. So the spiritual life of the people also became rotten. And we heard a description of that maybe last week in Isaiah 1. These people who had two faces who were very religious on the one hand, but their life had become rotten. And as the life of the king and the life of the nation became diseased, things started to go wrong externally as well. Um, the most powerful empire in the world at that time was Assyria. Maybe some of you are saying, could you show us a map, John Mark? And yes, the answer is yes, I can. Um, so just to give you an idea, here is Judah uh, down here. Um, and the purple area there um, was Assyria uh, at the time at, un until near the end of Uzziah's reign. Assyria was an empire, but it, it was quite a small empire and it was a little bit dormant or sleepy. It wasn't that interested in expansion until just five years before the end of Uzziah's reign, a new king came to the throne um, in Assyria. And his, his name, remarkably, was Tiglath-Pileser III. How about that for a name? And he kind of was what that name sounds like. He was energetic and aggressive, and he, he had ambitions to expand the empire. Um, and he was followed by three more kings of Assyria who were similarly expansive and aggressive, and they were called, wait for it, Shalmaneser V, Sargon II, and Sennacherib. Right? So they didn't go in for um, very ordinary-sounding names. But they, the, the area in green on the screen is what Assyria came to be as it expanded. And you can see, if you look at it, there's almost this kind of arm reaching down closer and closer and closer to Judah and Jerusalem. And this is what happened in the lifetime of Isaiah the prophet. Um, from the time that Tiglath-Pileser III came to the throne, Judah had very little peace. They were, from that time on, threatened and bullied and defeated by a series of empires, first Assyria, then later Babylon, and then Greece, and then Rome. And their own kings, descended from David, became weak and ineffective. They became kind of puppets of the empire, more and more. And all of this, this whole um, trend would eventually end in exile in Babylon with Jerusalem and the temple destroyed and the line of Davidic kings essentially coming to an end. So, with that story in mind, I wonder can you start to hear, when you hear in the year that King Uzziah died, can you hear what kind of associations are around those words? It brought to mind a time when everything was starting to fall apart. The golden age was ending. There was political upheaval, there was national decline, there was cultural decay, including spiritual and moral decay in the nation. It felt for Jewish people like the beginning of the end of the world. That's what comes to mind when you think of the year that King Uzziah died. The golden age was ending and everything was starting to fracture. And I want to just pause for one second and just ask this really simple question. Um, does any of that sound in any way familiar? And I don't mean the details of it, 
But a time of political upheaval and uncertainty, a time of maybe national decline when the glory days are behind you or it feels that way, a time of cultural decay, including spiritual and moral. Um, I'm just putting the question out there and you can reflect on it. Does any of that sound familiar as we enter 2022? Um, let me ask another question. Um, how do most people respond at a time like that when it feels like everything is falling apart? How do most, what's, what are the, the main ways that people tend to respond? I, I think there are two main human responses. Um, one is to go to despair and gloom and just sit in a puddle of despair and say the world is going to pot and kind of give up. Just be in gloom, be in despair that the world is going in this direction. Another possibility that's very common is to go to panic and alarm and start running around saying the sky is falling down and maybe get a little bit aggressive and say we've, we've got, we're going to fight, we're going to do something, we're going to take somebody on and become very aggressive and panicked in our reaction. I think those are two very common reactions when it feels like everything is fragmenting. I think Isaiah, the prophet, shows us a different way. He begins instead, at that time, a long lifetime career as a prophet, which lasts through the reign of four kings of Judah and four Assyrian kings, in which Isaiah remains faithful and speaks what is true and right, and also, maybe most remarkably, remains hopeful. Because for me, above all else, Isaiah is the prophet of hope. So even as everything is falling apart in Judah and in the wider world, Isaiah stands as this faithful person of hope. And I find myself wondering, well, how was Isaiah able to do that? And maybe to ask a more personal question, wouldn't you love to be able to do that in our time? Whatever is going on in our world, to be able to be faithful and to be able to be hopeful, even as things are fragmenting. How was Isaiah able to do it? Um, I think the passage we're thinking about this morning tells us um, a big part of the answer to that question. In the year that King Uzziah died, as all this was happening in Judah and the world, this is what Isaiah says. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Isaiah is given a vision of God. And I think that's the key to understanding Isaiah's faithful, enduring hope through the times that he lived in. He was given a vision of God. And he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And I think that, that language is so important and that part of the vision is so important. In a time when the nation was starting to wobble and even a faithful king was starting to become faithless and you wondered who you could follow and who you could trust, Isaiah sees someone sitting on a throne and it's not Tiglath-Pileser III. Right? It's a much greater king than that. God is on the throne. He is king of creation. He is lord of all things. It's an incredibly important vision for Isaiah, and I want to suggest for, for us as well. Um, 
Maybe one little comment. Um, sometimes, you can discuss this over your Sunday lunch, um, sometimes today um, people like to say this phrase, they say, God is in control. Uh, and I've said before, and I'm going to say it again, it's not a phrase I particularly like, and it's actually not one that the Bible tends to use. Um, and I think there's a good reason for that, because the language of control can suggest the picture of God as puppet master, kind of micromanaging everything that happens on earth. And it can, if we're not careful, end up kind of suggesting that God is the author of suffering and evil. So that's not language that I love. What the Bible tends to say instead, and it says it many times, is that God is on the throne. What does that mean, that God is on the throne? It means that he is king. It means he is greater than any of the powers that rise up in our world. It means he has authority over every other power and throne and dominion and all the rest. It means he's not taken by surprise by anything that happens in our world, and he's not alarmed by anything that happens in our world. I think it's significant that in the vision, God is sitting on the throne. It's a picture of, of someone at rest and at peace. He is not in a panic. He is not running around. He is sitting on the throne. And I think it makes a huge difference to how we respond to the news of the day or the gossip of our neighbours if we know that at the centre of all things, at the centre of all things, God is on the throne. It makes all the difference in the world. And along with being on the throne, I love the phrase that says, I've used the old language here from the King James, he is high and lifted up. And I love that phrase. Simply saying he is greater than, higher than, more glorious than anything you have ever seen and anything you can ever imagine. He is higher. <laughs> he is high and lifted up. It doesn't mean he's aloof uh, because he's deeply involved in his creation. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. Uh, sometimes we say about someone they're kind of above it all. That's not what we're saying about God. But it does mean he is beyond comparison and beyond imagination. He is high and lifted up, high and exalted. And so, I wonder whenever we say all that, when we think about this, maybe you might be, be thinking this morning, I would like a vision like that. That sounds pretty amazing. Um, I would like a vision like that. That would make, maybe you're thinking, that would make all the difference in my life because I'm awfully, often a bit wobbly and a bit um, fearful and a bit cowardly and maybe if I had a vision like Isaiah it would make me brave and make me bold and make me ready for anything and I want to suggest it's worth pausing um, whenever we say I would like a vision like that it's worth pausing for a moment um, there's a pop song when I was younger that said if God had a face what would it look like and would you want to see it I think it's a really good question um, why why might we hesitate to say, I want to have a vision like that. Well, I want to read on. We're going to read a little bit more of the vision in Isaiah 6. And this is how it goes on. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings, they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two 
they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I wonder if you'd agree that the vision that Isaiah sees, um, it's certainly beautiful and dramatic and exciting, but it's also a little bit terrifying. And it kind of nearly kills Isaiah. He is nearly undone by the vision. Um, sometimes we, we talk very casually about God, um, like we know exactly what he's like, like we've got a handle on him, like we've got him figured out, like we can define God and explain God to each other. Sometimes preachers are the worst at that. Um, Sometimes we talk about God very casually, like he's our buddy and our kind of personal magic genie best friend. Um, but this passage suggests when we get a glimpse of what God is really like, we end up on our face. I don't know if you know the word glory uh, that's, that's used here is closely related to the word for weight. And there's a sense here of whenever you experience God as he is, there is a weight that presses down upon you. I don't know if that's something you've ever experienced in your life. Um, I'm often struck by the fact, um, or um, by the similarity between Isaiah's experience and an experience Peter had in the New Testament. They were very different experiences. Isaiah was in the temple. Peter was out fishing. But when Peter was out fishing with Jesus, he was given just a little glimpse of the power that is at God's disposal in the miraculous catch of fish. And his reaction was very similar to Isaiah. He, he fell down among the fish and he said, get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. When you get a little glimpse of the reality of who God is, that seems to be how people respond. Paul, whenever he glimpsed the glory of God on the road to Damascus in his encounter with the risen Jesus, was blinded for three days by what he experienced. Um, and so maybe for you and I, maybe we should be careful what we wish for. Um, is this something you really want, this kind of vision of God? Um, I wonder, did you notice um, Isaiah doesn't describe the one who's on the throne? Um, he describes the train of the robe and he, he talks about the seraphim and their wings uh, by the way, the word seraphim means burning ones, which I kind of love. These are spirits of fire, um, the burning ones. And he describes the doorposts of the temple shaking, but he doesn't describe the one on the throne. And you find yourself wondering, is it because what he sees is indescribable and there are no words for it? Or does he feel that to try to put it into words would be blasphemous so he doesn't even try? Or is it because it was too bright to look at, like, uh, like the sun, but on a much greater scale. Um, maybe a little bit of all of those is true. But at the heart of Isaiah's vision, the angels, the burning ones, 
sing a song and they sing holy, holy, holy. Um, so if you're asking Isaiah, what was he like, the one on the throne? This is the answer. He was holy, holy, holy. Three times for emphasis to make sure we hear it. Three times for Father, Son, and Spirit, something of the mystery of God in three persons here in this vision. I wonder, do you know or have you noticed as you're reading Isaiah, um, do you know what Isaiah's favorite name for God is? There are many names for God in the Bible. Um, but there's a name that Isaiah uses many, 25 times, I think, and that it's only used a few times elsewhere in the Bible. He calls God the Holy One of Israel. That, and it's no wonder because Isaiah had this vision and when he saw the one on the throne, the angels said, holy, holy, holy. wonder what you hear when you hear the word holy. Um, probably, maybe, uh, we think first of a, a kind of moral quality of goodness, um, of God being without sin. Actually, before the word holy comes to mean that, and it does, and we'll, we'll come to that in a second, um, the word holy, first of all, simply means something like set apart or other. <laughs> um, it describes, one commentator says, it describes his awesome differentness and transcendence. It's saying, when we say God is holy, we're saying God is not like anything or anyone else in creation or in existence. He is transcendent, glorious, mysterious, awesome, other. He is holy, holy, holy. There's, there's a sense as we talk about God's holiness that all our words fall away, all our words fall short, all our, our little boxes and labels for God are too small and get blown apart. And you find you can't describe them or define them. You can only fall on your knees and worship and join in the song of the angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy means different, other, transcendent, mysterious, awesome. But then secondly, holy also speaks of his goodness and his purity, that he is light and in him there is no darkness at all, that he is good and in him there is no badness at all. He is holy. And as we read the, the, the vision that Isaiah had, we realize, well, what happens to a human being when they encounter that kind of God? Isaiah's response, he says, woe to me, for I am ruined. He feels, there's a sense that Isaiah feels deeply his own grubbiness, um, his own sinfulness. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. And he also feels the grubbiness of his community. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm living among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. Maybe the word unclean there reminds us of Uzziah's leprosy, which was a physical picture of the disease that had entered the nation. Um, by the way, um, if you've been reading Isaiah, um, you may have already come in chapter 5, to the first of a kind of lots of woes that are in the book of Isaiah. As he says, woe to you, woe to you. And he names the sins of the people. And sometimes we find that a little difficult to read. But if you were reading Isaiah 5, um, 
you, you may have noticed there are six woes that go through Isaiah chapter 5 um, as he names the sins of the people. You can count them. But in the Bible, the number seven is always the number of completeness. So if you find a list with six things in it, you're always waiting for the seventh. And where does the seventh woe come? It comes in chapter six, as Isaiah the prophet says, woe to me. So he's not just pointing the finger at the people and saying, you are unclean, you have sinned. He is saying, I am one of you. He stands among the people, aware of his own need and his own sin and his own weakness and his own uncleanness. Um, again, I want to ask, are you sure you want to have a vision like this? Whenever you turn on a light in a dark room, everything becomes visible, um, including the clutter and the mess and the dust and the stains. And sometimes you want to turn off the light, as, again, as quickly as possible, or put on a dimmer light. Um, so let me ask again, do you really want to have a vision of God like Isaiah in Isaiah 6? But um, here is the good news, and you know this if you've read on. Um, Isaiah is not destroyed. God sends an angel, a burning one, with a burning coal and touches his mouth. God, God acts on his behalf to make him clean. And he takes away his guilt and his sin. And I wonder, can you see that again, we, we find the gospel in Isaiah, whenever we get a glimpse of God and his glory and his holiness and his brightness and we are ashamed of our own darkness and grubbiness and sin, God acts on our behalf. And he doesn't just for us send an angel, but he comes down himself in the person of Jesus and he takes our sin and our shame and our guilt on himself on the cross and he makes atonement for our sin and not only for ours, but for the sins of the world. And so Jesus has opened the way so that, and this is the remarkable bit, so we can approach this God, this God that we've been talking about, without being destroyed. We can approach the holy, awesome, glorious King with the freedom and confidence of children who know that they are loved. Um, and we can meet him face to face. And I wonder, can you see, we only get the beauty and the glory of the gospel when we're able to hold these things together, how majestic and holy God is, and yet that the way has been opened and that we are invited and that we are welcome. Um, in, in Isaiah's vision, we are reminded that God is holy. We're also in the next breath reminded that God is gracious and merciful and kind. And by the way, those are not opposite sides of God's character, like he has a split personality. The holiness of God is a burning fire of love. It is a holy love. And so at the very moment where we think we're going to be consumed, we find that we're forgiven. And he has made atonement. And we don't need to be afraid in his presence. And we're invited to draw near. And so, as I get near the end... Um, I want to I say this. Um, I believe that God wants to give you a vision. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. Um, I don't mean necessarily a vision just like Isaiah's. That may be an unusual experience that Isaiah had, though God could give you that kind of vision if he wanted. And there are certainly plenty of examples in the Bible. 
but I believe God wants to open the eyes of your heart and show you more of his reality and his holiness and his glory and his love. I believe that. He wants to give you that kind of vision. I wonder, do you believe that? That God wants to give you that kind of vision? Um, and maybe we're wondering, well, how, how do I get vision like that? Um, and the passage doesn't tell us how. This is a gift that God gives to Isaiah. I can't give you seven steps to make it happen. We can't manipulate God into doing this. Um, but as I was chatting about this earlier in the week with Ricky and we were wrestling with it together, there were two words that came to mind. Um, how could you and I prepare ourselves for this kind of vision? Um, there are two questions, two words, two questions. The first one was this. Um, are you hungry for this kind of vision of God? Is this something you really want? Um, that's a, a question we kind of have to answer honestly. Are you content with your current vision of God, with your current walk with God? Or do you want something more? Is there something in you that says knowing about God is not enough and talking about God is not enough? I want to see him in his reality. Is there something in you that says, my, I know my view of God is much too small and too tame. I want to see God in his majesty, in his glory. I wonder, can you find in yourself this morning a flicker of hunger? Uh, I think there's a principle all through the Bible that God gives where he finds hungry hearts. <laughs> Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find there's a moment in another story in the Bible where Moses says to God, show me your glory. And it's not a question that God turns away. Right? I wonder, can, is there something in you this morning that could say that to God? Show me your glory. We're going to sing in a few moments. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. So that's my first question is, are you hungry? Um, I want to encourage you to sit with that question today, this week. The second question is this, is are you available? Um, we need to know that God doesn't give a vision of himself just to entertain us with a dramatic spiritual experience. He gives Isaiah this vision to equip him so he can send him. And in the bit that we didn't read that comes just after, God says, who will I send and who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And he is ready and available to go wherever God sends him. Um, and by the way, God also tells him the mission's going to fail. <laughs> Nobody's going to listen to you, but I want you to go anyway. And so maybe for you and I, we need to ask this question. We're saying to God, I want a vision of yourself. Are you ready? Are you available to go wherever he sends you and do whatever he asks you to do? And they're two big questions. I'm going to leave them um, hanging over you today and this week. Um, what, what we're going to do now, um, I thought doing things a little bit differently, we're going to respond to what we've been hearing from God's word um, in song. I'm going to suggest the band come up. Um, and first of all, we're just going to sit in quiet just for a couple of minutes um, and just reflect on this vision of God in Isaiah 6. And maybe in that question, are you hungry 
uh, to see more of God and God's reality and God's glory. And are you available? Um, so let's just sit in quiet for a couple of minutes and then the band um, are going to lead us in song.